Please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given, you can turn to page 875 to find our passage. As we begin, I want you to think about who has the authority to tell you how to use your money. Right? If you're a grown-up, you immediately say, well, well nobody, really. You know, I mean, you know, maybe you recognize the government's authority to impose taxes on us, and I guess if we break the law, they can confiscate some of our money. So we, we recognize that, but generally we understand kind of to, to, be, to be a grown-up is to kind of have that authority. Right? Your authority, you have your own authority over your, your own money. No one can really tell you what to do with it. Now, if you're a parent, perhaps you're like my household, where you sometimes exercise some, some confiscatory authority over your children's finances, right? Uh, I was listening to an economist talk about his own parenting, and he talked about how he would make his children put down deposits on things that were messy, so he would say, if you want to play with that thing that's messy, you have to give me $5. And if you clean it up, you get the $5 back. Well, this is a genius idea. <clears throat> There's been times where we felt the need to impose some financial penalties. You know, and so as a parent, you have that authority. You, know, you, you broke your brother's thing, you owe him for that thing. And I'm going to enforce the repayment of this, right? Uh, but as grown-ups, we, we, for the most part, have our own authority. Well, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to confront the fact that Jesus says he has authority over, his, over how his disciples use their money. And we're going to see this causes the Pharisees and scribes to, to reject him. That when he touches this nerve, they ridicule him. They reject Jesus' authority to pronounce how a person should use their money. And so in a, in a relatively short passage, we get these two major themes that kind of clash together. Money and authority. Money and, and how it represents our spiritual health is kind of foregrounded in the first part of the passage. But as kind of a subtext, is not just money, but it's about Jesus and his authority over money and what that says about him. Because what we're going to find is that in the scriptures that God has authority ultimately over how his people use their money because God owns all things. And so Jesus is kind of putting the question out there. Do you see me as God and submit to my right to give you instructions about your money? So as you look at this passage, we're going to divide it up into two parts, two commands we might say. The first command is to disciples, that disciples of Jesus worship God through generosity. We worship God through our generosity. So the second command is given really to all people, that you submit to Christ as your Savior and King. All people are commanded to submit to Christ as God, as the one who saves people and rules over them. And in both these cases, as we're speaking of, of Christ and we're speaking of God, we're, we're speaking of the God who was revealed to us last week in Luke chapter 15. There he was revealed to us as the God of compassion, the God who, who is like the father who runs out to clothe his son in the robes, right? The God who Tim Keller described as prodigal, 
who's willing to spend everything for the sake of saving a soul. And so as we think about serving and worshiping God through generosity, we're talking about serving and worshiping that generous God. Disciples serve and worship their generous God by being generous. And all people are commanded to submit to the generous God as their Savior and King. So with that, let's read the first parable and Jesus' explanation in chapter 16 going down through verse 13. Listen to God's word. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from my man for management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Again, just to remind us of last week's three parables. They were all about God's abundant joy and his compassion over repentant sinners. But even as Jesus was proclaiming that, he was also confronting the self-righteous religious leaders, telling them that they needed repentance. And they were not immune from the need to repent and trust and, and find salvation in Christ. Jesus specifically told them that their grumbling about God's grace to sinners, which was revealed in Jesus, that grumbling would exclude them from the joy of heaven. Now this parable in chapter 16 is quite different. For one thing, it's not given to this large group of sinners and Pharisees. Jesus is aiming it here at his disciples. Probably that means the twelve. Maybe it included a slightly larger group. But it's aimed at those who are not just physically kind of walking the road with Jesus, but they're, they're following Jesus with their hearts. They're trusting in him. And this parable is difficult in that you can't do kind of a one-to-one analog between anyone in the parable and any specific group. It's not about the compassion of God like the previous parables, but rather it's about the shrewdness of this dishonest or unrighteous manager. But despite all these differences, there's also some similarities between the two parables. For one thing, the dishonest manager is described with some terms that are a little bit like the prodigal. 
So the, father, the prodigal took his father's wealth and he went to a far country and he squandered it on reckless living. Well, Jesus uses the same Greek word to describe what the manager does. He wastes his master's possessions. So both of them, they've squandered, wasted something, and this leads them both to have a, a money-slash-job problem, right? The prodigal, when he runs out of money, he attaches himself to someone and becomes a pig herder. Uh, the text, uh, the ESV translates it, hire himself, but really the word is attached. He may have done this for no pay. So he's just doing this, hopeful maybe to get some of the pods that the pigs ate. The unrighteous manager recognizes he's in a job and money problem because he's too weak to dig and too, too proud to beg. And so he knows his current job is ending. And so both characters come to this realization and they talk to themselves, right? They, the prodigal comes up with a plan to go and try to be a servant in his father's house. And the unrighteous manager comes up with his own plan. Now, very different, not at all repentant, but still a plan to get himself out of this mess and to, to take care of his future. At the very least, I think these similarities in, may mean we're, we're supposed to read these parables together. The prodigal son is a context for the parable of the dishonest manager. The dishonest manager provides further instruction for sinners who've repented and come to faith in Christ. And I think keeping them together helps us or prevents us from misreading or maybe overinterpreting either parable. So if you hear the prodigal son parable, you might be tempted to think that righteousness and faithfulness don't matter at all to God. I mean, the, the son who squandered the wealth, he was received back, right? Uh, the, the fatted calf was slaughtered. He was given the robe and the ring. And the, the seemingly righteous and faithful son, he's left standing outside the feast. But this parable of the dishonest manager tells those who've come to know the compassionate God that God calls them to a life of faithful and exclusive service. So we look at the parable and Jesus' teaching afterward. That's the picture we get. And yet having the prodigal son as the background prevents anyone from reading the parable of the dishonest manager from thinking that it's through our righteousness and our service that we get saved. So both of them help to balance the other. In other words, we're meant to see that God, the Lord and Master of chapter 16 is the joyful, compassionate father of chapter 15. And further, we're meant to see God's mercy to sinners and his righteous rule are fully and finally revealed to us in Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord. So let's look a little deeper then at this parable. And it's, the parable itself is really verses 1 through 8, and then there's an explanation and some teaching that follows. It's a parable about this manager who's dishonest and yet commended for his shrewd dealings. He's, he's dishonest, which is actually just the word unrighteous. So he's the unrighteous manager commended by his master. And the key verse is verse 4. When he comes to his decision, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their homes. As we see in the parable, what he plans to do there is to offer some discounts to the debtors that his master has. 
He engages in a kind of shady networking, right? So that when he's fired, some of his old master's debtors will repay him with a job. He'll have a place to go because they realize he's done them a good turn. He discounted their debt by 50 or 20%. And in verse 8, his master commends him for, for being shrewd in the way he has managed this process. Even in getting kicked out, he's been a, a shrewd manager. Now, when we read about him, it's, it's surprising to us, isn't it, to hear Jesus take this unrighteous guy in and have him be commended in the parable. I mean, it doesn't compute with our moral sensibilities. Our instinct would be for this parable to have an ending like the, the parable of the rich fool in chapter 12, right? That, you know, this dishonest manager should have had an encounter with God where God confronts him, you know, and says, your soul is going to be required of you. But I wonder if this even is Jesus' clever way of reinforcing the prodigal son parable. I mean, wasn't one of the points of that parable to say to everybody, you're all unrighteous, right? Whether you're a sinner like the prodigal or you look more upright like the older son, you're all unrighteous. You all need to repent. And Jesus knows how persistent our innate legalism is. And so he throws us a curveball with a parable about someone who's dishonest and yet commended. I mean, it's too far to say that, you know, the punchline of the parable is that somehow this dishonest man repents and is in the kingdom of God. But it does suggest the idea that the unrighteous can be commended by their master. I mean, that's kind of on the surface of the parable. And if you think about some of the broader audiences of what Jesus has been saying, among them were tax collectors, right? I mean, what were tax collectors but unrighteous managers, right? I mean, they were maybe the best unrighteous managers. They were kind of working things all different ways, best in a bad way. (laughs) They, They were really good at being bad, right? So by using this character, Jesus is kind of forcing us all once again to ask in kind of a question he might have asked the elder brother. Are you grumbling because God receives sinners who repent? Are you grumbling because the unrighteous get commended sometimes? That's a question I think we're meant to ask as we read this parable. But it's not the main point of the parable. The main point is the unrighteous manager's shrewdness. That he knows how to use money to accomplish a purchase, a purpose. Now Jesus is not commending his dishonesty but that he makes friends for himself through the use of wealth. He was generous with his master's money to secure his future. He was generous with his master's money to secure his future. And in a weird way, this describes a key aspect of faithfulness for Christ's disciples. And that's who it's for, right? Jesus is talking to his disciples. And we could put the teaching of the parable like this. Be generous with your master's money for the sake of your eternal security. Right? All of our money we know is God's. It's his money. Be generous with your master's money for the sake of your eternal security. Now, as quickly as we say that, we we have to caveat it and say that giving away money doesn't save you. You can't purchase eternal security. That's not what Jesus believes about salvation or what he's taught. But 
Generosity reveals that we share in Jesus' perspective on what is truly valuable. Notice in verse 10 how Jesus contrasts very little with much. Right? He was faithful and very little will be entrusted with much. In the parallel verse, verse 11, we see that Jesus regards very little as the unrighteous wealth of this world. That's what very little is. The much are the true riches. I think we could insert there the true riches of the kingdom of God. And we naturally get this backwards, don't we? The very much, the impressive stuff is all the money, right? We're easily impressed with great sums of money, right? We're wowed and amazed sometimes by the numbers that we hear. We place a great value on money and we discount the value of spiritual things, of eternal life, of life with God. We get things exactly reversed. But in Jesus' way of valuing things, what is really valuable is to know and worship him. All the money you can imagine is is very little by comparison to that. Perhaps the most mysterious thing Jesus says is that our faithful use of money here, our faithfulness in this very little, is somehow connected to what God entrusts us with in his kingdom. This is hard to understand, I think we should admit. And I don't know exactly the the actual outworking of all of it. Although there is a consistent theme in scripture of of God rewarding his people for obedience. And this is still a gift of him, of his grace. But we we can say that we'll all share in glory. uh, But we might say some are closer to the throne than others, you know, in glory. Uh, that seems to be a consistent theme through, through, the, through the scriptures. So, so will we be rewarded for how we use money? Yes. Will anyone be saved by their use of money? No. But the real bite of the parable is this. Are you as wise with money as the unrighteous servant was? And the way he was wise is, again, he was wise because he, he used his money to secure himself open doors in the future. Right? He secured his future with open doors. He was thinking about the longer term, right? Jesus wants you to ask, are you thinking about the future? And now by future, he doesn't mean your retirement years. He means that eternal future. Are you living shrewdly by living for life with God now so that you can live with God forever? Are you living in a way that you're preparing now for eternity? Jesus makes it clear that wealth will one day fail. He says that in verse 9. Right? He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He wants us to be really clear. Eternal wealth fails. Right? It did all, nothing for the rich ruler right? in, in chapter 12 when his, his great storehouses did nothing for his soul. And the passage that Pastor Gio, Gio read for us told us that you can't take it with you. right? You're going to die. The rich are going to die. All like beasts die. And the money, it doesn't ransom your soul at the end. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like a beast that perishes. In death, 
you and your dog will have the same net worth, right? Jesus wants us to ask, am I placing my trust in riches? He wants us to know that riches will not last, but his treasures will. And that's really the heart of Jesus' teaching. You can't serve God and money. Wealth can't save you. But if we love, trust, and serve our money, it can damn you. Wealth is a blessing. It's a gift of the Lord, and it belongs to the Lord. It can be a wonderful tool for doing good. A wonderful tool, but a terrible God. It's an enslaving idol. So money is a lying enslaving, destroying God. But God is a rewarder of those who seek him. When we repent of our love of money and trust in God, we get something Jesus calls true riches. Right? And this, this can, goes with everything else we've been saying in Luke, right? that we get money bags that don't have holes in them. right? We get something that lasts for eternity. And this is not talking about wealth in this life. So this is not a promise that if you trust God, you'll be healthy and wealthy now. It's a promise that when you trust God, you get get gifts and rewards that never fail. The unrighteous manager was wise enough to see what was most important. It was most important now that he, he used whatever resources he had available. He used his master's wealth to secure his future. Are we living like that? If you look at your your budget and your bank statements, what would it say about where your trust is? Or another way to ask the same question is, do we look like children of our compassionate and generous Father? That's who he's revealed himself to be in Luke 15. If we've repented and trusted in him, we're claiming to be sons of God, do we resemble our Father? Jesus commands his disciples, be generous with your Lord's money for the sake of your eternal security, for the sake of weaning yourself off of the things of this world. Live now for eternity with God. So that's Jesus' message to his disciples. But the Pharisees we see here in verse 14, they're listening in and they think this is ridiculous. Worthy of ridicule, which they provide in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Notice that Luke inserts an editorial comment about the Pharisees. They were lovers of money. Their ridicule of Jesus, then, is the fruit of this love of money, of what they value most. So we said earlier, Jesus says the the money, the unrighteous wealth is worth very little, but the Pharisees basically are saying, no, it's worth a lot. Jesus has just said you can't serve God in money, and the Pharisees insert themselves into this conversation as walking, talking illustrations of people who seem to believe they can serve God and money. Now, to be fair to the Pharisees, there is some Old Testament precedent for associating wealth with the blessing of God. So when God promises his people 
that they're going to enter the promised land. He talks about it in terms of material prosperity. The blessings of the covenant were material prosperity, at least in part. So there was that association. God wanted to show to the world the goodness of following him. His people were meant to be uh, that city on a hill. You know, a holy people who demonstrated the blessing that comes from knowing God. But even so, even having said that, Psalm 49 that Gio read for us, that was in their Bibles, right? It's, it's there for them to read. And so it's possible to look at your Old Testament and, and do what the prosperity gospel preachers do today and pick out verses that make it sound like that if you're faithful, you'll be rich. And the, the Pharisees seem to be doing that. But good Bible readers have no excuse for doing that. And Jesus says to them in verses 15 and 16 that they're trying to justify themselves. So he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right? Abomination just means detestable. So they, they're good at finding biblical justifications for their actions. Right? They're good at, good at explaining away any accusation and saying, no, it's, it's right that I love money. It's right that, I, that I'm building up all this wealth. They're really good at making the scriptures say what they want them to say. But Jesus says, God knows your hearts. He knows that your hearts are far from him. God says, you are an abomination in his sight. Because you exult in these things. So if we're tempted to think, well, this, this is all about money. Money is just the presenting issue. There's something much deeper going on here. Again, look back at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. And they ridiculed him. They heard Jesus. They heard him teaching not to serve money. They heard him teaching about generosity. They heard him teaching about eternal life and the exclusivity that God demands. They heard all this. And usually in Luke, that's a really good sign. We noted that last week. The, The sinners and tax collectors, they weren't only sinners and tax collectors, they were the sinners and tax collectors who were drawing near to hear Jesus. Hearing is usually a really good sign, a sign of faith. So it's all the more damning that they heard him and then they ridiculed him. They heard his teaching, his teaching about money, his teaching about serving God alone. And that's, as they said, a reason to mock and reject him. This is the core problem of the Pharisees. They don't want to worship him as their savior and king. They rejected Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus specifically as the one who has the authority to represent God. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. He is proclaiming to his followers This is what pleases God. This is what it looks like 
to live as one who's been accepted by God. This is what true servants of God are like. There are those who recognize what's eternally valuable and they live for that. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's presenting himself and teaching as one who has authority. And here his teaching about money becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Pharisees. It touched on one of their sacred idols. So even though just a couple chapters before, they're inviting him to dinner, they're giving him kind of the honor of treating him like he's one of them, now all that's off. Now they ridicule him because he's touched this sacred area. Are there any areas of your life like that? where you don't want to hear what God has to say about it. You hear or read the scriptures and you bristle. You immediately start to justify yourself. You've got your list of reasons why what you're doing is okay. If you've got that area of life, that's a, that's a good sign that God is showing you one of your idols. He's showing you a way that you're tempted to serve something or someone other than him. But back to the Pharisees. They rejected the idea that Jesus reveals who God is and interprets God's law. In chapter 15, they grumbled that he ate with sinners. And now here they despise his teaching about money. And yet, remember, these Pharisees believe that they are the guardians of God's law. That they're the ones who've really understood what Moses and the prophets are talking about. And they're applying it for everybody. And they regard their interpretation and application as the one everyone else who's righteous should fall in line with. So they think they are the ones who are the true guardians of the law and the prophets, and yet they're ridiculing Jesus. That's a really important context for what comes next in verses 16 through 18. Jesus says to them, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now when we first hear this, it sounds like a strange collection of sayings. It's got this confusing bit about forcing your way into the kingdom of God. That may be a good place to begin trying to understand this. I, I think this is actually a translation issue. It's a very debated verse. One commentator said this is the most difficult verse in the whole Gospel of Luke. This is the part about everyone forcing his way into the kingdom. That's how the ESV translates it. I think we should go with a different translation of this, uh, this verb here. So the Christian Standard Bible says this. The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter into it. So just to be clear, that's, that's not a twisting of the text. That's not something fancy where they said, we're going to add a vowel here because we don't think this makes sense. No, that's, that's a legitimate interpretation of the same Greek verb, and I think it's the better one. The kingdom of God is now preached, and everyone is urged to enter it. Jesus is he's making an argument about the way the whole Bible fits together. So the, the Old Testament scriptures were kind of like a, an investment that has a maturity date. And it's matured. It's time for the payoff. And here's the payoff. The kingdom of God is here. 
The kingdom of God is proclaimed. And now to enter into God's kingdom, into God's family, into a right relationship with God requires hearing the good news of the kingdom and believing it. Everyone is urged to be like those sinners in chapter 15 who were drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And Jesus is clear that the arrival of the kingdom doesn't mean that anything in the law and prophets has passed away. It can't pass away. But instead of seeing those law and prophets as a bunch of commands to be obeyed, we should see them as promises that have now been kept. They've not passed away at all. They've all come true. All those promises are kept in Jesus coming and preaching. And Jesus is saying to his Pharisee friends who claim to be the keepers of the law and the prophets, if you had really believed the law and the prophets, you would be believing believing me. If you had truly heard them, you would hear me. And that's why this teaching on divorce and remarriage is included here. It's kind of thrown in, right? It doesn't seem to fit with anything. But Jesus is demonstrating his authority here by declaring his authoritative interpretation on this very practical issue. You know, we might think that we're the only culture that's debated, you know, marriage issues, but they were a hot-button issue in, in Jesus' day about what were the proper grounds of divorce. And you had different parties that were split. Some were very permissive in saying a man can divorce his wife if he burns dinner. And another party that was more conservative said, no, it, it must be only for issues of sexual immorality. So Jesus is weighing in here and giving his authoritative interpretation. Now, this is not all that he ever says about divorce and remarriage. We can go to other passages in Matthew that would talk about it in more depth. But what's noteworthy here is that in a very short passage, Jesus is putting his finger on kind of two of the biggies, right? How you use your money and who you marry, how you you govern your sex life. Both of these come to the fore. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one you must listen to on these things. I have come. And if you're going to be a faithful listener to Moses and the prophets, you must attend to what I say about this. I am the authority. I am your Savior and God. Are you submitting to me? And that leads us to the second parable of the passage. Because we're going to see both of these themes, money and um, Christ's authority and a third theme of eternity, all merge in the last parable of this passage. So let's read that beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. As I said, we have these main themes of the chapter converging here. Money, eternity, and the purpose of the law and the prophets. This rich man here ends up in hell, in anguish. And in life, we're able to see the way he treated the poor man, right? It says he was rich. There was fine linens and purple adorning his, his dining room. He feasted sumptuously every day. This is like untold wealth in the subsistence culture. There may even be a kind of a callback to the opening chapter of Esther where we see purple and fine linen mentioned. So this is a rich man who's got more wealth than than anyone in his culture can imagine. And yet in life, he fails to care for this poor man laid at his gate. The subtext of the parable is that both of these men were Israelites. They're both part of the covenant community. And so this man at his gate is not just a random homeless man. He's a, he's a brother, right? Part of the covenant community. And he has more than enough. He's got a sumptuous feast at his table every day. He's got more than enough to provide this man what he's asking for. But he doesn't provide. He neglects him every day. And Lazarus is not only hungry, but he's suffering terribly. And yet, Lazarus who probably would have, been, would have been regarded by many as a great sinner, right? he's clearly done something wrong to end up in such poor shape, he's taken by the angels at death to Abraham's side. He's taken to, the, to basically heaven, to the place of comfort, it says. While the rich man ends up in anguish in Hades. That's all the setting. The, really, the main action of the parable is the conversation that the rich man has speaking a, across this great chasm to Abraham. Abraham's afar off and he's talking to him. And at first, his question or request is for Lazarus just to give him the smallest bit of comfort, to dip his finger in some water and touch his tongue. But Abraham says this is impossible. Abraham speaks tenderly and truthfully to him. He, he calls him child, just, just like the, the father did to the elder son in the previous parable, uh, in, in, in the prodigal parable. He calls him child, but tells him there's no way. There's no way to transverse the, the chasm that's been fixed between us. After death, there's no second chances. There's no communion between the two realms of the dead. No one can pass from heaven to hell or vice versa. Our choices in this life have eternal consequences that can't be reversed. And so from here, the rich man turns from begging for comfort for himself to begging for Lazarus to return from the dead and to go to his brothers. 
The implication here that he comes from a whole family of greedy people who need to repent of the way they're using their wealth. But in the parable, Jesus puts these words in Abraham's mouth. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. To this, the rich man responds, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They need to hear Moses and the prophets and repent. The Pharisees, earlier in the passage, have heard Jesus' words and despised him. And again, the beginning of chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners, they came near to hear Jesus' words. Jesus is making a point with his parable that to, to hear Moses and the prophets rightly would be to hear Jesus rightly, be to repent of our greed and to serve God with our money. He's putting his finger on the Pharisees' kind of presenting problem, their love of money, and their root problem. They're despising of God's word as it's been revealed in Moses, the prophets, and now Jesus. They're being told, if you really were listening to Moses and the prophets, you would repent and believe in me. You see, if we hear Jesus rightly, we will hear that he is the answer to the Old Testament's riddle. How can God be gracious and loving and yet not fail to punish the guilty? How can sinners... Know God's righteousness and his grace. We can only know this by looking to Jesus, by hearing him, by hearing him as he reveals God as the God of grace and compassion, the prodigal God, and the God who demands our exclusive worship. The only way to be reconciled to this God is through faith in Jesus, the righteous one, who died in the place of sinners. Christ is presented in this passage as God in the flesh, visiting his people and speaking God's authoritative word to them. He's revealing their sin. He's putting his finger on their greed, putting his finger on their failure to love. And he's showing them, your real God is your money. Your real God is yourself. You've put your trust in wealth that fails. And you're so obsessed with it, you've failed to care for the beggar at your gate. You've failed to care for the people God has put right in front of you to care for. And he's saying this to people who think and are convinced that they're serving God. That they are righteous. This raises some uncomfortable questions for us. Do we think we're righteous? What does our money reveal about our true hopes? What What does our love of others reveal about our love for God? Are we hearing the scripture's testimony about what we love and about where forgiveness lies. What do we think are the true riches 
that will never fail. The good news of the kingdom is not be righteous with your money and you'll definitely have eternal life as a direct payback for your righteousness with money. That's not the good news that Jesus preaches. The good news of the kingdom is that God is a compassionate God. He's compassionate to those sinners who know the depth of their sin and repent. He's compassionate to us when we we reach the end of ourselves and we realize, I've been serving my money. I've been putting all my hope in what I can secure for myself. I've been serving myself. Jesus would bring us to that point. He, He loves us enough to confront us by putting things in black and white terms. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot live for yourself and say you're trusting God. He calls us to repent of that and to receive the Father's prodigal grace. He asks us, have you received this forgiveness? And then he asks us a further question. Are you loving much as one who's been forgiving much? Are you living like one who has experienced God's great generosity? He calls us not to put our trust in money, but to serve the God who provides for our every need. Isn't it amazing, the verse that we began with, this worship service, that God provides a, a kind of salvation that's of abundant wealth and riches, but it's all without cost. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Wine and milk without price. Isaiah asks, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Why do we put our hope in wealth that fails? Trust the gospel. Here we find true riches that never fail. Let's pray. Our Father, we're sobered by the way that you reveal our sin to us. How you put your finger on our greed and idolatry, on our failure to love as you have loved us. We pray for hearts that are soft. We pray against the reaction of the scribes and Pharisees here. These men who heard Jesus' word and ridiculed them. Father, help us not to despise the Lord's teaching. And Father, when you reveal idols to us, give us the strength and confidence in Christ to seek to kill them, to mortify our flesh, to kill sin, lest it be killing us. We pray for your grace to live in light of your generosity. And once again, that through the way we live, we would draw attention to your great goodness in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.